0: If you're enjoying these episodes of Yankton's Yardbirds, join us on our support site called buymeacoffee.com. Please consider clicking the Support the Show link included in the description of each show. You could choose to donate $5, $10, $15, or $20, or you can become a member. Members will receive extra content that will be added as the shows progress. This will include pictures of the vets, audio interviews, maps, write-ups, and much more content that will be available to members only. Please consider making a donation or becoming a member soon. And as always, thank you for listening to Yankton's Yardbirds. Today's podcast is sponsored by David M. Hosmer Law Office, which is celebrating David's 30th year practicing law. You may not need a lawyer, but when you do, you need an excellent one. Contact him at davidhosmer at hotmail.com.
1: Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. The American military was so unprepared for a possible Japanese attack that some of its immediate stateside responses were comical. Located under the north base of the Golden Gate Bridge is a lighthouse known as Lime Point. It looks like God chiseled it out of the rocks. Prior to the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor, Coast Guarder Elmo Christensen and his crew were given a handheld telescope and told to look at sailors on Japanese tankers as they arrived in San Francisco Bay. Elmo witnessed Japanese sailors taking pictures of the bay. Elmo informed his superior, who then contacted the Army. There was nothing they could do to stop the photographers. It wouldn't be Elmo's last time looking for Japanese sailors. Elmo's a Yankton kid. Listening to him talk about his childhood as a Yankton history lesson. His father was a mailman and also a veteran of World War I. At the age of four in 1924, Elmo was at the dedication ceremony of the Meridian Bridge, Yankton's noted double-deck, through truss bridge spanning the Missouri River. Gurney's Seed Nursery was his mall because it had everything, including a barber, groceries, jewelry, clothing, photos, and a seed nursery. His first entertainment was WNX Radio, which was broadcast from Gurney's. He sat in the studio and listened to the on-air personalities such as Lawrence Welk. From his first house at 610 Broadway, he and his friends walked to the Teapot, the city's swimming pool located on the east side of Broadway, just north of Marn Creek. Kids played marbles, kick the can, and baseball at the City Diamond located at 9th and Burley. He loved watching Western films at the Moon Theater, and his favorite actors were Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. Elmo graduated from Yankton High School in 1940, although he could have graduated in 1938. He was told that he had a leaky heart, so he sat out an entire year, and he returned the following year and spent a lot of time on his bicycle to get out of school. Quote, I learned more on my bicycle than I did in high school, unquote. Elmo enlisted the Coast Guard in the fall of 1940. I didn't know what else to do, he said. At his first Coast Guard physical exam, Elmo was rejected because he was too short. He went back to Omaha a second time and apparently grew because they took him. Elmo was assigned to the lifeboat station at Point Bonita, California, located on the ocean side of the mouth into San Francisco Bay. He repeatedly commented that it's beautiful there. Elmo's friend Robards lived in San Francisco and his father was captain of a merchant marine ship. Robards took him to all the good places in the bay. There was a dance all north of Sausalito where military men usually had a tough time gaining admission, as demonstrated by the signs above the door of many establishments that read, Dogs and Sailors, not allowed. Elmo was in the day room at the lifeboat station when the chief petty officer announced the sneak attack in Pearl Harbor. The petty officer barked an order Elmo, Willie, and Robards, go get the motor surfboat and go patrol under the bridge. They were given a 30 odd six, a 45 pistol, and shells for both. He said, We knew nothing. They also happened to see nothing. As a result of their watch, as Elma was fond of saying, not one Japanese sailor invaded the Golden Gate Bridge that night, unquote. Elma practiced that line for seven years. And that was obviously a farcical example of how unprepared we were for the war. The military response wasn't limited to San Francisco. Ten soldiers were ordered to protect nearly 500 miles of coastline ending at Bandon, Oregon, And one of those men was Frank Breno from Yankton, South Dakota. After boot camp, Frank was stationed in Tacoma, Washington. After the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, he was ordered to gather some ammunition and weapons, put him in the truck along with some men, and head out. He was told the civilians were, quote, under martial law, but he's wondering whom that was. The men dropped off along the coast, some at electrical stations, and a couple guarded the bridge over the Columbia River. Frank set up his artillery piece at Bandit and wired in their communications through the old bell system at a gas station. He had good visibility of the ocean, but it was pitch black. All of a sudden, they spotted their first submarine. He let it come in inland as far as possible, sighted it, and then took the lanyard to blow up the sub. All of them were petrified. No survivors bobbed in the surf, so they let him have it again. One of the other guys started to laugh, Breno, I don't think we're going to hit it. I think it's a log. Just about everyone is a little nervous. Frank Breno was one of 11 children born to Fred and Eliza Glendy Breno. Frank, born on the 15th of April, 1921 near Lake Andes, was the ninth child. The family moved to Yankton in 1927. After graduating from the eighth grade at Grove School, he worked at the Anderson Stockyards and on the Anderson Family Farm. Frank enlisted in the Army in 1939 and was assigned to the 41st Field Artillery Unit. He was discharged in 1946 and married Mildred Frank on the 21st of February, 1947. They had four children, and he was very active in their lives. He worked at Gambles, Montgomery Wards, and was an auctioneer and general contractor. He also opened the first self-service gas station in Yankton history. However, he will likely be remembered most for his work with disabled American veterans. He was the first commander of the Yankton Heavily hymas chapter. The energy and time he placed into veterans' work is immeasurable, and he was the driving force behind the World War II Memorial located at Phantom Memorial Park. You will hear more about Frank in the European theater. Invasion fever ran wild along the west coast immediately after Pearl Harbor was attacked. The army reported that its radar had tracked Japanese planes within 100 miles of San Francisco. This was highly unlikely for many reasons, but most especially since the Imperial Japanese Navy was at that moment attacking Malaya, Singapore, Wake Island, Hong Kong, and the Philippines. Widespread blackouts were imposed on the West Coast, including in Seattle, on the 8th of December, to prevent any Japanese planes from spotting potential targets. However, several lights in Seattle were not dimmed. As a result, riots composed of more than a thousand people broke up. Twenty-six plate glass windows and hundreds of lights were smashed. Seven arrests were made, alcohol was likely involved, and the City Council later prohibited bars from being open during blackouts. A 1 a.m. curfew was established. Hysteria led to more curfews and more seizures. Panic behavior continued. Every Rose Bowl but one has been played on New Year's Day at Pasadena, California. Fearing a Japanese attack on such a large crowd, the Tournament of Roses committee moved the 1942 game to Durham, North Carolina. Duke was upset by Oregon State, after which 29 of the 32 Beaver players enlisted in the service. Ironically, on the East Coast, the Battle of Submarines was occurring in the Atlantic Ocean. On the 19th of February, 1942, President Roosevelt, pursuant to his war powers, issued Executive Order 9066, authorizing the Secretary of War to create military zones from which, quote, any or all persons may be excluded, unquote. Congress acted too, making it a criminal act to knowingly disregard military orders applying to persons within a military zone. A Japanese submarine tossed a few shells at an oil refinery near Long Beach, California on the 23rd of February, and in the ensuing panic, the Army fired over 1,400 shells at quote, Japanese airplanes over Los Angeles. Although what they likely saw was a weather balloon. On the 2nd of March, 1942, General John DeWitt, who oversaw stateside defense and the Western Defense Command, declared much of the Pacific Coast a military zone. And shortly thereafter, a curfew was established within the entire zone. At that time, a land invasion of the West Coast seemed very real to the citizens living there. Imperial Japan had quickly expanded throughout Asia and the Pacific Ocean. But General DeWitt did nothing to quell public anxiety, in fact, he used urgent language. In response to San Francisco's tepid response to air raid warnings one day, he said, quote, "Death and destruction are likely to come to the city at any moment." Unquote. He intimated that bombing would quote, "awaken this city." Unquote. When the press asked about firing on the planes, however, he said, "It's none of their damn business." Unquote. These rules had a direct impact on American citizens. In 1942, Kyo Takata Takashima, her two siblings and her parents lived in Kent, Washington, several miles south of Seattle, which is in DeWitt's zone. At seven years old, Kyo was the second oldest child. She attended second grade at a local public elementary school. Her parents were sharecroppers who raised vegetables. Kyo's father, Shikeo Takata, was born in Hiroshima, Japan. Her mother, Shimano, was born in America which made Keogh, pursuant to the 14th Amendment in the United States Constitution, an American citizen too. Keo's first memories of the war are of darkness. Members of the Seattle City Council had been convinced since the fall of 1940 that blackouts would be necessary to protect the city in case of war. The first blackout test was held on the 7th of March, 1941. Within 10 minutes after sirens blew, all lights were to be extinguished. At the Takeda House, Shakao put blankets over the windows in their home. Of greater concern was the freeze on international travel. In 1940, her father had taken his six-year-old son, Haruso, to Hiroshima to visit his ailing father. It was decided that he would stay in Japan to assist the family after Haruso's grandfather became ill. Shakao planned to return to Japan, but once the war started, Haruso was stranded. Although public sentiment initially supported persons of Japanese descent, the Los Angeles Times referred to them as, quote, good Americans, unquote, this changed. In addition to the Japanese submarine near Long Beach and the Battle of Los Angeles, there was another event that changed public opinion. In late January, a Navy report revealed of the Nihao incident. After Japanese pilot Shigenori Nishikaichi, crash-landed his plane on the very small island of Nihau, a native Hawaiian captured him and seized his pistol and personal papers. Two Hawaiian-born residents of Japanese descent helped the pilot escape and joined in his mission to destroy his secret plans of the Pearl Harbor sneak attack. News of the altercation had a profound impact on public opinion, leading some to believe that persons of Japanese descent could not be trusted. Keo's small world changed for the worst. She had always played with many neighborhood children regardless of the race. After the attack at Pearl, she met one small white boy, and he was very unfriendly to her. He told her that he did not want to play with any Japs. She said, I had no idea why he turned so hostile. On the 3rd of May, 1942, Exclusion Order number 34 was issued, and it required, quote, all persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, unquote, to be evacuated from military zone by noon on May 9th. Non-aliens is a reference to American citizens. As a preface to the evacuation, they were to report to relocation centers along with only those essential items they could carry. Although she was oblivious to her circumstances, Q remembered the assembly center in Fresno. Only given one week to leave, many families sold their homes at dramatically reduced prices. While their family did not own a home, they had to leave their two horses, one of which was named Mike. Keo loved that horse. And she and her siblings were yanked out of school, creating an air of fear to them. The Takatas were forcibly removed from a Fresno to a concentration camp near Tule Lake, located on the border between Oregon and California. Camp Tule Lake had previously been used by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Each family lived in barracks in a room that was about 20 feet by 20 feet with a pot-belly stove and one light. Families with more than six persons had two rooms. Outhouses were in use year-round. Children used chamber pots. Meals were served communally, and the children attended school within the camp. Adults hid the pain of relocation from the children. Kyo's parents protected her from the war. She recalled, My parents never talked about war, nor did they mention Haruso who was stranded in Japan. As a result, her recollection of time at the camp was great because she had a lot of friends. She said, I had fun. I didn't even have as many kids to play with back home. She saw many of them at school. However, this perspective was that of a child who previously had few other children with whom to play. They were still Americans. But it was still a surprise that Keo and her classmates ironically started every school day with a public recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance. Japanese Americans, just as with other citizens, retained some of their traditions and values, one of which was the importance of work. There were no jobs off campus, but the community organized a vegetable garden and much more. Another tradition was worship. Although generalization, many Japanese Americans practiced Buddhist principles temple was held in the barracks. However, those who had a college education, including religious leaders, were separated for fear that they may cause problems. Keough was told, quote, This has happened. You must adjust.
0: If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Beringer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds.